where we left off last week, we looked at the first of the sort of specific sections that John writes to these seven churches in Asia Minor. So last week we looked at uh, the book of the, uh, the church in Ephesus, specific section to the church in Ephesus. And the big takeaway was... Uh, Jesus, through John, was saying, you guys are doing a lot right. You're persevering, you're generous, you've got good doctrine, uh, you're keeping sort of the moral character of your community. But, and you might remember the but, because it was a big deal, John sort of says, actually, there's one thing that if you don't do, despite all that other good stuff you're doing, you're not really the church, you're not really God's people. That's a big call. And that thing was about the risk of forsaking their first love. And um, what that meant, we, we sort of mined back into Jesus' words, what, what does this language of first love mean? Uh, and I sort of touched down on some words from uh, a Revelation scholar called G.K. Beale. Uh, and he says, he explains this little phrase about first love in this way. He said it's um, the, around the idea that they no longer expressed their former zealous love for Jesus by witnessing to him in the world. He was reminding them that their primary role in relation to the Lord should be that of a light of witness to the outside world. And doesn't that just dovetail so nicely with thinking about chaplaincy and um, being, you know, do big things manifesting as small th- things through God's people in the world? It's all about God's love, living in that revelation of God's love for us and living out of it. So we're switching to some specific words that, um, that John, so Jesus to John, um, has for the church in, in Smyrna. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can, you can read along with me. It's just a few verses. So it says this, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, if you weren't here last week, you might think, that's a bit weird that he's writing to the angel. Well, I, I said something about that last week, so you can listen to it on the podcast. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the church in Smyrna, these are the words of him who is the first and last. We know that's language about Jesus. Who died and came to life. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are actually a synagogue of Satan. Do not Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death. It's always cheery, isn't it? Um, Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So these are words specifically to that community of Christians in Smyrna. And I've talked last week, and I mean this is something that we kind of we do here at Cornerstone. I talked last week about the challenge of reading scripture. Is um it's initially written to them, right? Uh, Pastor Graham says scripture's for us, but it wasn't written to us. Here, the them is the community of Christians in Smyrna. But we've got to try and see how it speaks to you and I. We've got to try and find a way of seeing whether these words to the Christians in Smyrna, in this case, can mean something to us. And I talked about how, and we talk about how, 
to do that well, we don't actually start with you and I. Um, sometimes the book of Revelation in our time can be treated almost as like a, a, a way of unlocking a secret code as to what's happening in terms of politics and government. But uh, that can be a bit of a risk. The second stage, if we find out what it means to them, so there's the gap between them and us, is to ask the question, well, what does this passage say to us broadly so not just the them of the first century in Smyrna not just the you and I of the 21st century in Australia but to the us of the whole Christian community across time uh, to the church broadly to God's people to believers another way of maybe thinking about this is asking the question what does this passage mean for Christians in Smyrna in the first century and then sort of considering what it might mean in light of the whole witness of scripture what the whole bible says that's another key to working out what a passage means consider it in light of the whole of the bible consider it in light of those first Christians in the first century in Smyrna to whom this section's written. Consider it in light of what it might mean to Christians throughout history and then begin to think about what it might mean to you and I here in the 21st century. Them, us, me. And I have drawn on this example even last week. But I thought I'd just touch back on the particular chapter that it comes from. How... I've heard this, this interpretation of a section of Genesis 9 for, for decades now um, because, uh, as you'll see, it's a bit of a dated, um, a, a dated reading. But I found very contemporary footage of a very high-profile sort of American evangelist preacher type talking about how obvious it is that this section from the chapter 9, from chapter 9 of Revelation is referring to Black Hawk helicopters so there's some sort of things in a, there's a description of a sort of a tormenting force in chapter 9 of revelation verse 7 something that looks like a, a locust or horses has a crown of gold has he, women's hair which is a dead giveaway for a helicopter um, teeth uh, like lion's teeth sorry that actually came across as a joke about women <laughs> which it wasn't meant to be um, this is maybe where I think the confusion comes in for this guy. The sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses. But anyway, here's this beast kind of thing that has a tail like uh, a scorpion that torments people for five months. It's doing the work of um, the, the Greek god Apollyon or the Hebrew god Abaddon, this sort of representative of the forces of evil. It takes some chutzpah, I think, to uh, outwork the, 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 um, the agenda of the forces of evil for all time, right now, with a 50-year-old helicopter. Um, but that's, you know, this, this reading kind of gets fixated on certain symbols that it doesn't seem to really understand from Scripture and the application to them of stuff that's happening in the newspaper. And the point that I made last week is this is a very... We think about the them, the us, and the me. So uh, the joke was that uh, you know it's not a very good it's not a very good uh, analysis, and uh, it's one that's going to go down. 
Because unless uh, the tribulation that chapter 9 talks about is going to happen immediately, there's not going to be many Black Hawk helicopters around. But this is a very um, sort of me-focused, they're starting from me, I think. It's sort of saying, I'm an American, sorry Americans, Uh, what's happening in my world? Well, we seem like the most important empire in the world, we seem like the most godly one in the world, and we've got Black Hawk helicopters. It's not a reading that's going to make much sense to the us of Christians throughout history. And God knows what sort, of, uh, what sort of sense it would have made to Christians in the first century. So there's a logic. Uh, this, is, this is not rocket science. This is quite bas- basic, what they call hermeneutics, the process and science of reading scripture. That We begin with the them, we move to the us, and then we think about the, the you and I, the me application. So the them's easy in these cases, the next little bit of revelation, because John spells it out. These are words for the church in Ephesus in the first century. These are words for the church in Smyrna. And I'm going to pick out three points uh, that uh, help us to understand what he's saying to the church in Smyrna. And they're around the poverty of the church in Smyrna. They're around the slandering of the Christian community in Smyrna and they're around the expectation of those Christians in the first century in Smyrna that they were to be martyred. You can see this is a real feel-good message that's coming up. Uh, You might want to sort of book note this one on the website and send it to your mother on Mother's Day because it's sure to warm the cockles of her heart. Anyway, with reference to their poverty, it says in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. And scholars uh, say there was something happening in Asia Minor generally, but was manifesting really sharply in Smyrna that was meaning that the Christians that lived there were struggling to maintain their livelihoods. And it had something to do with those guys. I'll flick past them for the sake of uh, brevity this morning. Uh, one of them was Nero. This one uh, is a guy called um, D- Domitian. And we think that Domitian was the emperor of Rome at the time that John is writing this letter. And these two emperors were notorious for what they call the cult of the empire or the imperial cult. Basically, that means that these two emperors of the Roman Empire... The, the power of the day, were insistent upon their, the worship of themselves as a god. So this is a depiction of Domitian as a god. I, won't, I don't have time to sort of talk about the details of what it is that makes him look like a god there. But basically, as we saw in Ephesus last week, there were, there were even temples that were built to these emperors uh, that hailed them as a god. And you can imagine in um, a society like that, much like today, you, uh, a lot of the business flows out of who you know, out of playing politics, out of being seen to do the right thing. And in many of these cities in Asia Minor, the place to be was at the temple or the altar of the emperor. That's where the influence flowed down. And basically, if you weren't willing to participate in paying tribute to the emperor, 
you were excluded politically. You weren't getting the jobs, you weren't getting the contracts, no one was buying your food at the market. And so the Christians fell into poverty for their refusal to be involved with basically the worship of a man because core to the Christian claim is that there is one king and he is Jesus. I know your afflictions and poverty, John says, and yet you are rich. So John is reminding the churches in Asia Minor and here reminding the Christians in Smyrna that there's something going on with Christianity and one scholar says this is an apocalypse in itself. This is a revelation that even though in worldly terms you might be poor, you might be hard up against it, if you are a subject or a child of the king of the universe, the creator of all things, you are actually rich. And this is a thread through the New Testament and through scripture, isn't it? Here's James saying, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised those who love him? We could also turn as one more example to 2 Corinthians. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, Paul says to the church in Corinth. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing and yet possessing everything. When you are Jesus's, your security is not rooted in material wealth. Your joy is not based in material wealth. But you can have those things even without material wealth because your God and Father is the King of the universe. That's good news. <laughs> That's good news uh, in first century Smyrna. It continues to be good news now even to a pretty wealthy church like us in 21st century Brisbane. Might make you think of Jesus' words, where he says, seek first the kingdom. You might remember he says, look at the birds of the air, do they hunger? Look at the beauty of the lilies of the field. God will provide for you. Seek first his kingdom. So whilst the church in Smyrna was poor, John says, actually, you're rich. Don't forget the heavenly perspective. You're rich. God will look after you. The second uh, point that I wanted to pick up was that the church in Smyrna was being slandered. So if you look at Revelation 2, verse 9, it says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Quite harsh words. And I feel a little bit uncomfortable actually going into the explanation of what's going on here um, as a Gentile because what we're reading here is some sort of Jew-on-Jew Jew <laughs> issues. So the first Christians were Jews and sure, uh, in these churches like Smyrna and Ephesus, there were Gentiles kind of getting involved, but actually the core of these Christian communities were Jewish. And one of the things that was going on uh, in Smyrna and in Asia Minor is that the Jews had managed to kind of come to an arrangement with the empire where as long as they paid the tribute, the empire sort of turned a blind eye to whether they were doing it as an act of worship to the emperor or whether they were sort of just, you know, getting business done. So the Jews were sort of going, okay, we'll give you your money, but you can't actually 
make us see the emperor as God. We're going to continue to worship Yahweh. We'll just pay the bill to the emperor if that keeps him off our back. For the early Christians, this wasn't an option. They felt like paying tribute to the emperor was as good as worship. They felt like going into those temples and up to those altars where the emperor was worshipped as king and laying down money was as good as putting their trust in the emperor and worshipping the emperor. And so they refused to do it. And scholars tell us, I mean, there's quite a lot of um, literature that comes out of John's disciples in that part of the world that goes into this. Uh, But there was tension because Christians were continuing to worship in the synagogues and the Jews were sort of going, actually, you guys are going to bring the the force of the empire down upon us. The suggestion is actually that those synagogues and some in those synagogues were beginning to sort of say to the Roman authorities, listen, these Christians, they might dress like us, they might read the same scriptures as us, they might even identify as Jews, but they're not really Jews. So whatever you want to do to them for not worshipping the emperor as God is not our business. We're doing the right thing here. John's uh, saying, actually, don't worry about what's being said in the synagogues about you. God has his eye on you. You are his people. There's sort of parallel literature that comes out of the same time. I don't know if you've heard of the Qumran community where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, Um, but they were a community maybe a little bit like John the Baptist that lived in the desert because they were also uncomfortable with the fact that uh, Jewish authorities were often sort of getting on with business with the imperial forces. So the Qumran community, they sort of said, actually, mainstream Judaism's lost to us. We're going to live a pure Judaism in the desert. And some of their writings say things like this. Those synagogues that make those kind of compromises, they are a congregation of Belial, which is um, basically... Paul references Belial as kind of... It's like a way of saying Satan. Um, They are a congregation of Belial. It is the true community, the desert community, the one that's outside of the mainstream synagogues who has leaned on the covenant of God They're the true people. So John's using language that those first Christians would have been familiar with. And he's saying, actually, God is with you. You are God's people, whether or not you're welcomed in the synagogues or not. So they were slandered, they were poor in Smyrna, and they were expecting martyrdom. Revelations 2.10 from the passage today says, "'You will suffer persecution for ten days.'" Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison. Be faithful and I will give you life as your victor's crown. What the Christians were doing in the face of the empire was essentially treason. It was treason not to worship the emperor as God. And if you know anything about this part of the world, and I'm assuming you do because you're in a church this morning, treason (laughs) wasn't treated lightly. Those who were treasonous against the empire and the the emperor were, were basically most of the time killed because it was a preventative measure. If you were put in prison, as many were, for 
the case of treason, it was exceptional that you would be let off. You were most likely going to end up killed, possibly crucified. And so it wasn't so much about justice as about instilling fear and order. You worship the emperor, you worship the emperor as God, or you probably pay with your life. And so when John is writing to uh, the church in Smyrna, he's saying, I know some of you are in prison or you're headed to prison, you're probably going to die. I see that. Now, it's interesting that it says you will suffer persecution for 10 days. You'll be in prison, you will suffer persecution for 10 days because that's a meaningless number um, with reference to the empire, but it's a meaningful number when it comes to Judaism and the scriptures of these first Christians, the Old Testament scriptures. And this is where it comes from. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And so he, that's a king in this story, agreed to this and he tested them for 10 days. Does anyone know where that's coming from? It's from Daniel. So much of Revelation is drawing from Daniel. So John is saying in a way that those early Christians would understand, hey, actually, God's people have a history being persecuted by evil empires and the call is and always has been to faithfulness. And if you know the story of Daniel and his friends, they are vindicated for being faithful to God. John is saying, even though you face imminent death, God will uphold you if you are faithful to him. It's a mix, isn't it? It's, it's a, it's a, in terms of, is it good news or is it bad news? John is facing the reality that his disciples there in Smyrna, that the followers of Jesus, the followers of the way there in Smyrna are going to die. But he says in hope, that not all will be lost because it finishes with verse 11. And I'm going to get the team up because we're going to have communion in a moment. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So though you may be languishing in prisons expecting your execution, though you may be poor, though you may be slandered by the people who you thought were your brothers and sisters, your foundation, your identity, your security is in the eternal life that your true king has already passed into. I'll just take a moment for those communion elements to be passed around. It's not in the material, in a worldly sense, a cheery message for the church in Smyrna. And it's one when we think about the broader history of God's people has been repeated many times. Christians, you know, they, they have paid with the price of their life in faithfulness to Jesus. And it's one that 
is a wrestle for us in the first century because, you know, frankly, I'm not, I'm not sure if we're there <laughs> yet. Um, by, you know, thank God we don't know anyone uh, in imminent risk of execution here in this country, even if it might be a reality in other parts of the world. So there's some discernment for us to do, isn't there, as we read this letter to the church in Smyrna. What does it mean to identify with these heavily persecuted Christians? What does it mean to identify with the persecuted church throughout history? to do the us part well, you know, to think about how this applies to you and I. Part of the hope, I think, lies in taking this particular letter to the church in Smyrna and holding it up, holding up to history, holding it up to the rest of the Bible. Sure, there have been communities that have suffered great persecution and are still in other parts of the world today. And I think it is incumbent upon us to think about how we can be the church with them. But I'm also grateful that we get to hold this letter with the letter from Ephesus to Ephesus, the words from last week to the believers in Ephesus. with a message that Jesus gave to John to give to the angel, <laughs> to give to the people. Is actually, it's all about God's love. I don't know where the Ephesian church was in relation to what the church in Smyrna was going through. John did say, well done, you've persevered. But actually, that's not even the most important part. Congratulations on persevering. Congratulations on your generosity, he said to the church in Ephesus. Congratulations on your sound doctrine. Well done. All that's a part and parcel of it. But actually, you're only the people of God when you do all that out of a revelation of God's love for you. You're only truly the people of God when that flows out of you into the world because it's not just you that God so loved. It's not just the church in Smyrna. It's not just the church in Ephesus. It's not just the church in Brisbane. It's the world, right? You might remember John's words from his gospel, for God so loved the world. So as we come to communion this morning, I would invite you to hold these two truths at the same time. Doubtless, persecution has always been a part of the church's history and I believe of the church's future. Of course, in one sense, of course, because our king is the one who would suffer for love. But the beauty of that is that he suffered to purchase eternal life. And when we live in that place, it really doesn't matter what sort of circumstances come at us.
maybe maybe things are getting worse here in in the 21st century in Brisbane I'm not sure but you know maybe w- there's a chance people lose their jobs maybe there's a there's a chance people are slandered to a new degree for the sake of the gospel maybe it's not more important than the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life life abundant why don't you take a moment to rip the covers off your noisy communion elements if you haven't done it already Jesus, you said your kingdom is not of this world. And here we are (laughs) in this world. Jesus, help us to be subjects of your kingdom here in this world. We thank you so much for the love that you have shown for the world giving of your own life you gave your life for the world you gave the life your life for each person in this room and as we eat and drink now jesus fill us again with your love give us a revelation of your love so that like christians in smyrna we're in touch with the place of suffering in your good news, that you were willing to suffer for us. But like the Christians in Ephesus, we never lose sight of why you did it. Fill us with your love, Holy Spirit. I pray as uh, we eat and drink that you would do the work that you do of filling us with that great love. For the sake of the world. Amen.